appeal to emotion. The appeal to emotion included these conversations and suppositions that say um, polygamy is really free. You know, we as men are not adopting this because of our own interests, but rather this is a good look for you. We're really thinking about you. These are the ways that they benefit you. Um, In this session, we're going to look at the appeal to authority, which pretty much does the opposite. These are the suppositions that say, uh, because I'm a man, I'm entitled to these things, and it has nothing to do with you. And your whether or not it benefits you, whether or not you like it, is not um, important. It's not necessary. It's not a factor in this um, decision. It's because I, being a male, have the authority to enact this type of marriage model or to, to insist upon this particular marriage model. And these are the arguments, those that we're going to go over, these are the arguments that are often presented to support to that position. Um, so according to our books, the first supposition is there's like this divine unspecific quota in terms of how many children we're supposed to have. So that, that argument um, is presented in the form of we must produce. There has to be more children. There's uh, Jacob had 12 children. We need to have lots and lots of children. And this idea that Israel has to have lots and lots of children is where the idea of this divine, unspecified quota, because it's not like uh, we're saying every family has to have this specific number. It's a very unspecific number, but it's this idea of multiplying. Um, recently, we even saw, uh, I saw, I don't know if anyone else has to see it, but um, there's a, a meme of Bebe's kids. Like, that's very, it was a very popular uh, comedy routine uh, when I was young, and they made it into a cartoon uh, about Bebe's kids. And Bebe's kids' infamous line was, we don't die, we multiply. And um, I recently saw a meme along those lines that said, you know, as Israelites, we don't die, we multiply. And they used these the three little children from baby's kids. Um, now, it's funny. The meme was funny. The notion is funny because there's nothing in Scripture that says that we have this unspecific goal. There is the general, the general um, proposition that we have an obligation, or it was the Most High's intent, that we would be fruitful and multiply. That's indisputable. Obviously, we should be fruitful and multiply. We shouldn't die out. The most high didn't create us for us to die out. But the notion that we have a quota that we have to meet, that um, because there's this divine, unspecified quota, that a man who has one wife might fall short of that quota. So in, in the in the ambition to meet this quota of um, children, he must increase his uh, his pool of women who will be able to reproduce well. So um, obviously this is nonsense. I just like I, normally I refrain from from dismissing something so bluntly, but it, that's that's 
yeah, as you know, I'm not feeling well. I'm, I'm, I'm not really, um, I, I have no intention of filtering anything today. Um, it's nonsense. It, it, there's nothing in scripture that supports it, therefore it's nonsense. There is no unspecified, there is no divine quota. The men do not have to meet a specified quota, therefore there is no need, no urgency, no uh, requirement that he multiply women to meet the fictitious quota. Uh, a family who has no children because of whatever their circumstances are has not fallen short of uh, the most high expectation. The gates won't be closed. They won't. This is this is not what's going to happen. There's no scripture that says if you have no children, we can't let you in. Um, also, we discussed probably in our marriage session about the fact that fertility is the responsibility of both partners. So if the woman is fertile and the male is not fertile, then that family is not going to have any children anyway because the male will fail to reproduce. So irrespective of how many women are introduced into that paradigm, there will be no children in that union because the male isn't able to produce this as an actual condition. So the it's just a really weird kind of um, manufactured reason to compel someone to believe that this is something that's necessary. The reason and the reason why we're looking at these suppositions is not to say that the paradigm isn't valuable or the paradigm doesn't have merit, but rather the Arguments used to support it should also have value and have merit. They should be true. If the paradigm is acceptable, if the paradigm is something that exists appropriately in our culture, then there's no reason to use fictitious arguments to support it. As a people of the truth, it is a fair expectation that we will be truthful in our pursuits. So if uh, polygamy is a semantic goal, then it should be a goal that is supported truthfully, honestly, and with accurate information. And the sisters who are agreeing to be a part of these paradigms, participate in these marriage models, should be able to do so from an informed position, not because they were manipulated or misled or misinformed, but rather because they say, okay, well, this is a viable paradigm. This marriage model makes sense. This marriage model exists in our Hebraic culture, and I understand why I'm doing it, not because I feel bad about not doing it, not because I feel that I'll be a bad person if I don't do it, not because someone gave me bad information, so now I'm making bad choices. This idea, if you... If you uh, become part of this paradigm because you believe that there's some quota that we have to meet as a nation, then this is a bad reason. This is not why you enter into these paradigms. That's not why our ancestors entered into this paradigm. You are not reproducing a Hebrew marriage model. You are um, becoming victims to bad information. And that's not to say. The 23rd before I go to the 23rd supposition, is there anything about the 22nd supposition, the one we just went over, 
that anyone has um, anything to say about, any questions about, anything that they disagree with. Um, because we have a two-hour time window when there's violence, I would just um, consider that there's nothing to be uh, added to that and move on. The 23rd supposition is uh, a man can produce children longer than women can and produces more sperm than any one woman can fertilize. Now, uh, I'd be hard-pressed to argue that. That's absolutely correct. Men do produce or have the capability of creating children longer because sperm is viable longer than um, a woman is able to, than a, than a woman. And furthermore, he is uh, he has more viable sperm and the potential uh, to create life, to co-create life, that's an important uh, correction, to co-create life than... Um, any one woman could potentially, um, he could potentially create more children than a woman could uh, incubate or could, 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 could contribute to. That's a fact. Uh, the importance of this fact is tied to the previous supposition. Uh, kind of, it, it kind of uh, gives you the so what. Like, so what? So what? Potentially, a man can have several thousand children all by himself. Potentially, in terms of producing, if you were to uh, think about this in terms of a uh, assembly line, in terms of industry, in terms of mass production, absolutely, all those little numbers could potentially um, fertilize and co-produce ice. Um, with with a, with a female egg, that's true, but that's not creating. That's not raising children. Once a child, once the the egg and the sperm have co-created life, that life goes on to have needs, and that the, the need for that life to be sustained has to be addressed by the by the parents. So even if there's a uh, if one woman, one woman has the potential over a lifetime um, to have 30 or 40 children over her lifetime, and that's assuming there are, and that's a, a general kind of, you know, that, that's statistic of potential. Um, and that's not really factoring in the fact that there are multiple, she can give multiple, she can have multiple births. Um, but the fact is, if between a man and a woman with 40 children, Maintaining that family in terms of substance, in terms of food, in food, in terms of raiment, that's not something that is practical. It's not, you know, what you have the potential to produce and what you have the practical ability to support to be synonymous in a logical context. When we are talking about righteous people, we are talking about people who are not trying to taking advantage of their carnal potential, but instead are concerned with their abilities to maintain a righteous presence. So, and again, with there, with there being no quota to meet, there's no requirement that you exceed your practical ability. Furthermore, I want to I go into 
this idea that a man has a lot of sperm, way more sperm than women have viable eggs, okay? The reason and the reason I want to spend a little time on that is because, not, not to say that there's anything um, not valuable about that statement, but because there's the potential for it to be a little manipulative and the potential for it to be a little degrading, I want to speak to the women who may have heard these things because it, it can be perceived as, okay, these guys have this amazing potential to continue life, whereas women, and it's always that we talked about it previously, I'm finish my first thought and then go into the second thought, that the potential is cut off earlier. That's true. And my second thought was that we talked before about how incredibly important it was to women, women specifically, to have children. So the idea that a woman, A, doesn't have children and then on the other side of that, B, has children, but then that potential gets cut off. So we see that there's a strong desire. Women typically have a very strong desire towards motherhood for a myriad of reasons. For any spectrum of reasons, women have a very strong pull towards motherhood. And there are endless, endless documents, uh, documentary um, journal articles about what a woman goes through when that potential comes to an end, when she's menopausal and she, even if she never really wanted to have more children before, the fact that she cannot go on forward evokes a lot of depression and, and sadness and a uh, question of her self-worth as a woman because we tie so much of our feminine identity in mothering and nurturing and being a mom. A lot of, uh, typically, there are women who don't have those purposes. Typically, women tie a lot of their feminine identity in um, caregiving for children. So with that being the case, I want to talk a little bit with you. And as much feedback as you guys could interact with me, that would be great. If you don't, I'll just um, tell you a little bit about why I want I want to share this with you. Um, when women come to the point where they're not having any more children and, and a man uses that against them, to say, this is why I have to have more women, because at some point you won't be useful. That's sealed away. And I don't know how many, I don't know if this is the case for a lot of the sisters who are present on this call, but having been in the truth for as, as long as I have, and I hope, uh, 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 can let me know this is in her experience as well. But being told that your womanhood um, can be replaced or has to be supplemented because there is something that that expires about you or isn't good enough or, you know, or in any of these ways, deficient is hurtful and it feels away. So this 23rd supposition kind of falls into that manipulative category because it says, um, because I have this, this ability that you're not going to be able to fulfill, I need someone other than you. That's manipulative. It's hurtful and it makes a woman feel like she, she it, it could make a woman feel like she has to make different choices. I'm just wanting to comment on the, the sperm thing when the men say, well, we have a, a lot of sperm, a lot more sperm, in, and we can populate and this and that. Um, 
we have to remember that the vagina is very hostile. The vagina doesn't like stuff that's not supposed to be there, there, anything that's foreign, including your husband's sperm. If it's not supposed to be there, it's immediately your immune system is going to start killing off sperm cells. So that is one an, another reason why there's so much, so many sperm cells, because it increases the chances of reproduction. So that in itself needs to be looked at when people say things like that. Because most of the sperm cells, they don't make it. In, in one single ejaculation, it's pretty well documented. There are several thousand, even million, of these um, little swimmers of the toy to fertilize the one egg. And as a niece, who is a nurse, for those who don't know, by the way, as Lenny stated, the female body perceives all incoming um materials, even genetic material, as hostile and uh, as as, a, as an invasion, and will and will uh, you know in, in in some ways because it, it is also true that when a woman is having sex, the female body will do a lot of things to accommodate the male. So. It's mm-hmm. On the one hand, that yes, the sperm has a lot that it has to navigate through with this little tail that's doing all this work and moving around because the female body is not a a simple space. It's a, it's a very complicated little trail to the to the egg that the sperm has to make. Uh, it's true that the, that the female body has a lot of uh, a lot of obstacles that would be considered hostile to sperm. But it is also, again, it's also very true that the female body is extremely accommodating. Um, the female body will lubricate to itself, will, will, will cause lubrication, it will secrete so that the, the, there's, there's something for the flow to, to glide through because of the fact that the body does have these obstacles. So we want to be fair to the internal workings of the female body. Um, but it is an important point that these little soldiers won't make it. A lot of, there's going to be a lot of casualties on their way to the goal. So the fact that there are so many has to do with fitness and, um, and increasing the probability of reproduction because one or two are just not going to make it. You need to come through and have a heavy presence in the female body if you expect to if you expect to, you know, do what you came to do. And how often, and that's not even all of the time. Like every time you have sex, you don't wind up pregnant. So all of these uh, campaigns through the woman's body don't necessarily produce women. I mean, produce children. Excuse me. So that's an important, that is an important um, point that Ani made for us. Um, what we, we talk about, we know that in my past, specifically and particularly during the times of um, Adam, during the times of Noah, um, life, life, the life expectancy was tremendous. Uh, they lived for um, hundreds of years, in some cases 900 
some odd years. In one case, I think, right, 900 some odd years. Um, but that gets drastically reduced. Do we know when the Most High reduces the life expectancy of mankind? Like why, for example, people stop living hundreds and hundreds of years. Do we know why that happens? No? Okay. What happens is that um, when the Most High decides to re- – okay, first I'll adjust the, the series. The series are, you know, we ate better, you know, we had access to uh, untampered vegetation that uh, assisted our life. All those, all those things are true. That's, uh, there's, there's a principle that I like. It's called correlation versus causation. There, there are facts and factors that exist that correlate with other facts and factors, and that just means that both both instances or those instances are all true. So that's correlation. Causation is when one fact is the reason for the second or third or fourth fact, and that's causation. Now, it's a correlative fact that we had non-GMO vegetation and the quality, the way we kill things were, were according to a particular specification and we had a balance to see when we ate uh, of the female or male uh, of livestock. We had all of these very uh, intricate ideas about dietary uh, restrictions and, and permissions. That's all very, very true. Um, but more to the point, when the Most High reset creation, effectively he resets creation with Noah, he also states very specifically that he was going to reduce the life expectancy of humankind. He said, I'm going to reduce it. And then he gives us a number. It's not even like it's some vague, gee, I wonder what he's going to do next. It's 120 years. 120 years becomes our cutoff. And that's it. So... When we think about our uh, ancestral, our ancestors after that, and we start to see this sharp decline in um, in their life expectancy, understand it doesn't stop there. He doesn't he doesn't do the cut off there. He it's just a, a, a there's a slow decline. It just starts to reduce slowly over time, and then it plateaus, and then it never exceeds it again. I believe that Jacob. I think Jacob is the last one to exceed the 120 mark. Like after Jacob, that doesn't happen again with the one exception that I know of. I know of only one exception of that 120 mark getting exceeded, and that happens in um, Kings. I think it happens in Kings. It happens amongst, it happens during the line of Kings when a temple needs to be rebuilt and this one particular prophet lives a, an extra set of years to have that accomplished. It doesn't say for that reason, but it's what he does, and he does that with this one king who's a great king as long as he's alive, and then becomes, you know, crap once he dies. But it's the only exception to that rule that I know of. So having said that, um, the issue of menopause, the issue of um, not being able to have fertile years beyond a certain point becomes a reality for our female ancestors very early, much earlier than their ancestors. 
So that's not something that, that when, we, when we read about all of these women after the, the antediluvian um, period, all of these women who begin to quickly lament having not had children. We see Hannah, who, who was very concerned about it. We see Sarah, who says, you know, she believes that the Most High has left her, left her from, has left her down. And she's about 80 at this point, which I think that if we did the math, would correlate to what our current um, midlife kind of um, cutoff period for menopause would have been. I don't think that she lives more than 170, 175, maybe. She's, she passed her midlife. She's maybe 170. I don't remember exactly. But she's certainly not going to live. She doesn't live 300, 400, 500 years. She's already within that period of time where the most high has said, I'm going to give you guys a cutoff. So, um, so just this idea of being manipulated by our limitations. Um, someone stated people stop living more than 20 years plus pretty much after the flood. But, yes, that person is correct. Um, who, the person that attacked also um, gave the 120-year-plus response to that person is correct. Um, acknowledging that kind of cut my train of thought. The reason that becomes a little bit manipulative, um, this idea that you become useless and you become replaceable, you become something that needs to be supplemented, feels manipulative uh, for those reasons. But basically, you have to understand what happens physically. You know what happens with the the male contribution to co-producing life is that they have the sex part, the ejaculation part, and then they're pretty much done. What the woman has is she has the sex part, the, she gets to secrete things as well, and then now she has to carry life. Life grows with her. She keeps this process for after having contributed her half of the genetic information. She now has to nurture this life, and she she shares everything, all of, all of her nutrients, all of her energy, everything is being shared with this new life that is dependent upon her. So uh, anyone who, if you were to study medicine uh, from a historical perspective, you would know that women did not survive this because it is a very difficult process. Those of us who have had children in modernity understand the pain and understand the process, but we don't really have a good idea of the mortality that's involved in that, how many women died um, in this process because it's really a very dangerous thing for a woman. So the fact that a man can continue to nut until he's 80 makes sense because that's the end of his contribution to co-producing life. An 80-year-old woman who still has to go through those other 40 weeks, not the same. So there's a reason why women stop um, being viable for producing children. It's not because the Most High decided that men were uh, superior physical specimens. It's because he wants to protect his daughter. You, you as a daughter, if you were to continue to fertilize his every campaign, 
you will definitely be in danger. No matter, even even in modernity, with all the, the, the medicines and all of the anesthesias and procedures, an 80-year-old man who nutted does not have the same, uh, does not put him, his life at the same risk as the woman that now has to give and nurture and, and, and continue to support this life force at 80. It's not the same. So um, this reason for this, the, the, the point of making these kinds of statements to women to say, oh, I can continue to make babies long after you did, women need to not internalize that as, okay, there's a deficiency with me. The Most High doesn't trust me. The Most High looks down on me. Somehow this is bad or or a bright or a bright against me as a woman. It isn't. A lot of the things that are presented to us in a way to make us feel bad are actually supposed to be understood as all of the ways that the Most High protects us. You don't need to be making babies at 70. You don't need to be making babies at 80. You don't need to be putting yourself in these spaces because your body can't take it. The Most High is protecting you. The Most High never called these men to continue to make babies into their 80s. So this is not a vice against you. That is the point that I wanted to make with um, 23. If there are any questions or comments, we'll take those now. Otherwise, we'll go to 24. Position number 24. There are more women than men. Obviously, not this. Okay, it was obvious to me, but it became obvious to me that this is not obvious to everyone. So, the fact is, there are not naturally more women than men. And I make that qualification to say this boys are born at a higher rate than women. Than they grow. Boys are born at a higher rate than girls globally. Globally, not in 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 uh, little pockets, in obscure spaces, but globally. In your community, Israelite uh, boys are are born at a higher rate than Israelite girls. Everywhere, in some spaces, there are actually so many uh, men that women double up or triple up on them because this is such a reality. In terms of like, when we think about um, how these numbers tend to dwindle, they dwindle due to high-risk activities of our males. Our males engage in high-risk and dangerous activity that is not the same as the most high created more men than women. What it is is more men are transgressing the law, more men are turning away from the most high, more men are engaging in illegal, illicit, and dangerous activity and dwindling down their numbers. And even with this being the case, any census report will, will show this. If you need them, there are documents in our forum. That, um, that have documented this fact. These uh, discrepancies 
don't even occur until much later on in life. I mean, to I say that to me this. In your 20s and your 30s, you're still pretty much even. Barring warfare and, and other, and even then, that's not even a necessary factor because there's still a, a number of women who are engaged in the military and things. So even that can't be considered. And then when you want to consider, if you want to, if you want to factor into that the population that goes into incarceration and and the population that dies off through gang activity, you want to factor in the population of males that die off due to drugs and other illicit and dangerous chemicals that they put into their systems. Those are all two factors. Those are all two factors that happen in that period of life where we are at our most fertile. Like in our 20s and our 30s, this is when um, our, our men are making bad decisions, really bad decisions, but that is not what the most high plan, the most high thing saying that. So it's the idea that we will reward, that, that we are rewarding this behavior, that we've sacrificed all of our youth to the modern-day Moloch of the street, and because we have done this, we are going to uh, just kind of double up on the surviving men. Okay, the problem with that is there's no impetus to change. Especially not for the men. Why would the men stop engaging in in conditions that cause them to go to go to jail, that make them think it is okay to take drugs and to drink themselves into you know coughing and gaze? What would make these men think that it is okay, that it's not okay to engage in street warfare and have gangs and kill each other if the surviving men? and say, oh, well, there's a double and triple for not. We don't want to reward this behavior. We want to discourage this behavior. No, you can't do that. That's not okay. It's not, and it's, it's so interesting to me when I listen to uh, adult women who make very creative uh, and interesting justifications for adult men and their behaviors that they would never make for the sons they raise. Sons at home are not encouraged to engage in drug activity. They're not rewarded for for misbehaving. They're not uh, encouraged to not go to school. They're not encouraged to engage in anything that would cause them to not be alive and successful and capable of supporting a family in the future. That's not how we as mothers raise our sons. But then we as women, it's not the man's fault that he doesn't have a job. It's not the man's fault the world's against him. If he went to jail, that's not his fault. I'm going to forgive him. He's still in chain. That's all you say about your son. But you say this about this adult male. Oh, it's not his fault that he decided to not go to school with the drugs and hang out in the street. The black hand is changed. Okay. I'm, for one, not going to dispute that our brothers are amazing, beautiful, powerful, and yet should be in a position of, of, of I'm questioning this king kind of bad, but they definitely deserve to be in, definitely ought to be in leadership positions specifically and definitely in the home. But 
that is not the that is not the prerequisite of all men just because they're black. You have to make good decisions. I, I, I would I would I would submit that any female that chose to not go to school but instead chose to hang out and, and sell drugs and go to prison, that they are equally unsuccessful. So this is not a condition that is uh, particular or specific to them. It is due to the decisions that they made. It is not due to the natural order of things. So the argument that there are more women than men falls flat in terms of logic. Logistically, you can't submit that. There are more women than men. No, and the fact that there are more, quote, successful, unquote, women than men is also relative. It's relative. If you were to compare women who made the same decision as their male counterparts, their success rates are similar. If I'm a criminal, I went to jail. If I went to school, I had a job. I, I, I'm, I personally don't subscribe to, to a lot of these notions of equity in terms of uh, gender successes because all of the men that I know, that I know personally, and you can say, okay, well, my, your, your experience is different than everybody else. Fine, I'll accept that. But my personal experience of the men that I know, they're all professional dudes. They're all in positions that they're, if they're places of employment. They're attorneys. They, what, what, one works for the DA's office. The other works for, uh, is an investigator for over the police department here. There are lawyers that I know. There are doctors that I know, um, both medical and philosophical. There are people that I know that are high-ranking in a specific field. I know archaeologists. All of these are black men. Uh, there's a guy that I know. He's the CFO of a city agency. That's the highest uh, financial advisor in, in the financial agency. One is in the private sector. But... Um, and they're all married to black women. So I don't have the same frame of reference. So when I see all this lamenting that the black man is just so incapable of achieving things, I don't know that. I accept that there are men in these other types of positions, but I don't accept that it's because they had no choices or they have no ability, it's even more important. As women, as women, when we give up on our men, we have failed them miserably. When we say to them, this is all you can be, I understand it's the best you can be, let me defend your, 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 your mediocrity, fail them, completely fail them. And you fail them as women. You have failed your role as a woman. When you say that, and this is this is this is a digression. I accept that, and maybe this is not what you're used to. My other thing to you, but you know what? This is what I'm going to tell you because it's a, it, it bothers me. It really, really does because this is where we are going to fail. And I'm going to say it again because I, I need you to know that it's a 100 percent failure. No, their part, but your part. And let me tell you why. When the most I created you. He created you to help him. He says, I'm going to create a help meet for him. That is your purpose. Your purpose was not to applaud his failure. Your purpose was not to enable his failure. Your purpose was to help him. Not to powder his hind parts. 
Let's just put him in a nice, comfy little pampering table, but it's not the fault. It's to be like, bro, bro, get up. It's not okay. You're better than this. I will help you. That was our job. Stop enabling them. Stop accepting all of these flawed statistics. Stop defending all of these flawed positions. You are not being a feminist. You are being a least help to him when you say that's not true. That's not acceptable. That's not who you are. When we stop believing in them, they stop believing in themselves, and now we have this. And now we're sitting here making all these excuses. Oh, well, you know, men are in jail, and they're becoming gay, and they are um, taking drugs, and they're dying early. And so, yeah, let's double and triple up. No, no, no. Take responsibility and say, from now on, it's not okay that you guys are going to jail. It's not okay that you're taking drugs. It's not okay that you're dying in these incredible numbers as your women, as your wives, as your mothers, as your daughters. We don't like it as your sisters. It hurts the stop. That's supposition number 24. Does anyone have any questions or comments about supposition number 24? No. Supposition number 25. A man should not have to work. The women should take care of that. He has to be available to, quote, teach, unquote. Okay. Uh, this is something that I've heard. Personally, I've heard men say that I've actually seen pastors like all over um, the profiles of a lot of Hebrew-bearing, Hebrew-name-bearing men that they feel like having a uh, employment looking quote for the man, unquote, um, is something that they should not be required to do because they need to be available. Just in case, like, the most high sounds the alarm and they need, I, I don't know. I don't know what they're imagining. I don't know what. But so, so on their downtime, which is most of the time, they're in the house doing nothing because the most high might, spontaneously when the alarm, they need to be available. They can't be at work when this happens. Um, I'm going to say it again. It's nonsense. Obviously nonsense. Before you go anywhere, like I don't need to go to, to Revelation. I don't need to, to, to go into Matthew. I don't need to go into the New Testament, the Common Era. I don't have to go into Malachi. I don't need to go to Psalms. I don't need to go to not one prophet. Genesis. Tells you. In the beginning, before you go anywhere, Genesis, in the beginning, tells you that man is poor. Uh, all you sisters, listen, I love you to death. We want to support you. Expect that. We should, we, should, we should definitely do that. We want to supplement income. I'm saying it. It's hard. I think they're expensive. That's true. That's true. But your man should work. Your man should work. I'm not saying he has to make thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm not saying he has to hold the types of position of the, the most of the brothers that I know. I'm not saying that he has to do that. Whatever he does, he's working in construction is, is an extremely lucrative uh, 
admirable uh, job. It's manual labor. It's uh, something a lot of our men could do. Uh, men that work with their hands. And when you, when you talk, when you look at the profession, oh, by the way, I'll give you a list of the professions that are in, the, in, in our scriptures, in our schools, and in our history. There were jobs. So our men had jobs. This is funny. So the idea that our men should not be working now doesn't correspond at all with anything he breaks because they all had jobs then. Where was this non-working man um, in any of our schools? Like, what are they emulating that this is a conversation? They shouldn't work. The women were working and the men were not working. Where? Where, where, where did they do that? Where did that happen? Highways and byways. I love this. Highways and byways. It's it's usually so I can I can actually answer this. I've actually uh I've actually heard this. Um the brothers highways and byways. The, the the disciples that became apostles and taught obviously couldn't hold down a nine to five to their travel. They were going from space to space and from from city to city on the highways and byways. Um, doing this kind of teaching. So that did happen. A lot of them are not doing that. A lot of them are not called to do that. And those men, there's a, a point, and I, I really should have prepared it. I'm going to bring it up, and I will post where it is in um, our forum. Those of you who know it will remember. Those of you who know how to look up things will do that. The rest of you. I'll put it in the form. Uh, yes, it is true that the disciples of the New Testament Messiah did, in fact, go from city to city, which means they weren't at home with their wives. And they did uh, go to highways and byways, teaching, and obviously they did not have nine-to-five jobs. They had an annual salary uh, from any particular specific institution. That's true. But there's a conversation that occurs in in that same era where this type of thing is happening, and there's a rebuke that goes down that says that while you guys are doing this, running around, who's taking care of the women and the children? All of you that are concerning yourself and that you're doing all of these things, you've neglected the women and children. So it, it's the, 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 the women and children still become a social concern. And it's a problem when the men are so wrapped up in, in that particular part of what it means to reclaim. Because understand that when we're in the common era, in the common era what's happening is very similar to what we're doing now, which is why I think that this, which is why you would never hear me because the New doesn't have value because it's a, it's a historical placement of our people. And what they are doing during the common era is they are in the process of reclaiming their previous history and their previous way of life and, and their previous understanding of Hebraic culture that they have become separated from. They've become separated from our culture several times because as much as we talk about how we're in captivity now, this is not the first time Israel's been in captivity. Israel stayed in captivity. If you read everything before Matthew, Israel's consistently in, in, in some type of 
captivity we go into. We get um, we share culture spaces with Canaan at one point. We share culture spaces with Assyria. We become captives in Persia. We're captives in the real Babylon. This is not Babylon, by the way. Not Babylon. I really don't know how this is. This is not Babylon. Um, in real Babylon, we are in captive, uh, in captivity. We go in and out of captivity consistently. And we share culture spaces with strange nations consistently. This is, it's very, there are very few pockets of, of time where we are in our own spaces and are, are um, autonomous. You know, there's it, 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 pockets of it. But we're also in and out of captivity, and we're in and out of the culture spaces of other nations. It just, it just happens. Even when we have our own system of kings, we are sharing culture spaces with all these other nations that have their own uh, cultural dimensions, and we interact with that. Even if we don't adopt it, we interact with it. Um, so during the common era, this is happening again. This time we're dealing with these Roman, Greco spaces, they have their gods. There's even a point where um, they talk about Artemis, who's a, who's a famous Greek goddess. Artemis, Greek, I think. Um, so it's, and it's like Artemis is mentioned by name in, um, I think, Acts. So um, anyway, so yeah, they are reclaiming their Hebrew identity after having assimilated in so many ways with these uh, Roman and and Greek spaces. Because Roman and Greece are always fighting. Roman and Greece don't have a, they have a, a very violent relationship where they're fighting all the time. So they um, kind of go between who's, who's ruling whom at any at particular time. But um, we're kind of caught in the middle because we were occupying these spaces at that time. So having been being put in the middle of all this other political turmoil, um, this foreign political turmoil, we have lost contact. We have lost uh, connection with our ancient Hebrew culture and our our ancient Hebrew understanding because even our sages, even those who are who study and are well-versed in our ancient culture, have taken on their own agendas and have infused it with tradition and have infused it with politics and have, um, you know, kind of watered it down to make it more acceptable to these warring Greek and Roman um, empires that we are in the middle of. So, Israel, they reintroduced to the fact that they have a responsibility to the women and children from our Hebraic um Experience in our in Torah, we see that the the tithes that the churches the churches that is extorting from Christians. When we did it, it was so that the Levites could be sustained, so they didn't have any inheritance of their own. Our sacrifices are how they ate. Our our tithes are how they maintained their um, households, and the tithes also went to widows and orphans. That's our culture was was um, was very considerate of all of these social issues. We have a lot of for um, regulations that 
kind of legislate how we dealt with things socially. And those things are discussed in detail in the New Testament because of the fact that they're in that reclaiming position similar to how we're in the reclaiming position now. So uh, I bring up this common era situation because this is where the men are, you know, reclaiming all this new information. They have um, been under the tutelage of the New Testament Messiah. They're relearning all the ways that a Hebrew culture is supposed to function versus the way it's um, being traditionally functioning, traditionally represented, and uh, with the same kind of sever that you might want to say our brothers have now in terms of wanting to get the word out, wanting to get all the correct information out, correcting and, you know, relearning and unlearning and learning correctly, all the things that we're supposed to know to the guys view. But then if you do it to the to the detriment of the women, that's not okay. And that kind of gets called out in the New Testament. Um, so the idea that a man should not have to work is that the women are supposed to take care of that. That's not he break at all. There's nothing that says the women should take care of it. Um, Proverbs 31, the 31st proverb, where a, where a particular woman has is described, she, she is, we've discussed the 31st proverb in the forum before, maybe we'll do a session on it again. But this, the, the woman of the 31st proverb is a virtuous woman. She's a woman. The word virtuous means strength. It means strong. And she is the candidate for a king. She, when you look up Kyle, which is the word for virtue, and it's also the word for strong, uh, it shows that she has administrative, legislative authority, and she has, like, the power to command, like, armies. It, it, just, it describes what um, Kyle means. So the, the appropriate, uh, the meat help for a king, someone that's worthy, suitable, and appropriate for a king, which Lemuel was, would be a woman of similar stature. And they describe what that kind of woman would have the ability to do, so that all of the ideas of her purchasing land, uh, commanding merchants from abroad, she does all of these really amazing things. And then she's uh, very kind to the women she she has in her service. She has a, a... set of people that work for her. So um, that kind of also situates this specific um, person that the mother of King Lemuel is saying he should look for and a woman who's going to be meek for him in this uh, 31st proverb. But before that, again, we don't need to go that far. We can stay in Genesis. And in Genesis, we know when we meet Adam, Adam is told that he is to Keep the garden. He's there. His job is to keep the garden. Uh, in other spaces, we discuss what that means, what kind of title such a person holds, a person who is responsible for cultivating the land and for keeping um, animals is called husbandry. That responsibility is called husbandry. Such a person would be a husband. So long before uh, man was given ease, he specifically Eve to be a uh, husband to, he was first told to take care of this. 
take care of the garden. This is take it and keep it, cultivate it, nurture it, help it to grow. That's what Adam was doing before he got Eve. And then when both of them fell out of favor, both of them transgressed the law, both of them received their uh, their duty became colored. But even in this respect, after Adam is given um, rulership, you know, your he'll rule over you, your desires will be to him, his obligation to cultivate the land doesn't go away. And, and the fact that, oh, we talked about it earlier, these things are really hard for our brothers. It's really hard. I mean, there's no denying that it's hard. It's really hard for, for black men to to accomplish a lot of things that are significantly easier for men of other nations for reasons other than the things that they're imposing on themselves. That's a fact. I won't take that from them. It's definitely more difficult. But is that because of white people? Yes, yes. I'm going to take that away. Yes, yes, it is. But it's also because in Deuteronomy, Scripture specifically states that it will become harder. The things that were easy for you before, the way the earth used to yield to you, that's not going to happen anymore. From now on, with thorns and thistles, will the earth bear fruit for you? It's going to be harder now. So the fact that it's harder for the brothers, you can't fix that. That's their curse. Your curse is that in childbearing things, things are going to get harder for you. That's your curse. That's what happens to you. Nobody's coming to rescue you from that. Nobody's powdering your behind for that. Nobody's making excuses for you. Everybody will very quickly let you know that was your curse. Is that your husband's going to rule over you and all these things are happening to you, the most high said that was going to happen, you don't get to complain about it. The most high said they were thorns and thistles. That they're going to have with the, with the sweat of their brow. All of this is going to happen. The most high said that was going to happen to them. That's their curse. That's their curse, not from Deuteronomy 28, but from Genesis. That's not, and, and furthermore, the fact that we don't have anything, that's also not only Deuteronomy 28, that's also from 1 Samuel. When we decide that we're going to turn away from the Most High, you said that. All the things that I have given you, yeah, your king is going to want to take all that. Well, cool. Because you decided that you wanted to be like other nations, you, I'll let you know what a person other than, with someone other than me rules over you. You don't have any of that. He's going to take your kids. He's going to take your women. He's going to take your land. That's what happens when you reject me. That's in First Samuel. So, yes, Deuteronomy 28 is, I understand that's the foundational, how everybody gets recruited into the truth. They learn Deuteronomy 28. The responsibility of adults is to go past that and to continue to read the rest of the volume. Genesis tells you that it's going to be harder for the men to work, but they have to work. It doesn't say, oh, it's going to be harder so don't bother working, let the women take over. We understand this? Yeah, that one is my favorite one that I hear. And I know people personally, who brothers personally, who believe that. Yeah. That um, they should get as many women as they want, wives as they want. And just in case the father tells them something or they have to do something or get some inspiration, they need to be home while their wives go out and work. 
And you know, it kind of sucks for them that literacy is not on law. <laughs> get scared about, oh, we don't want to teach, we don't want to. Okay, but you can read. Don't teach anybody. I'm, I, I understand. I totally, uh, to be honest, I totally support a lot of people not teaching. Frankly, I think a lot of mothers shouldn't teach. But that has nothing to do with reading. By all means, read. Learning is not unlawful. Literacy is not unlawful. Reading is okay. The book says other things. So we should read them. Line upon line, piece of the passage. Then we'll do a little. It's important. It's important because that's how you get the whole picture. If you're looking at something just through a people, you don't know everything that you're looking at. Because you need distance and you need all of the information. Again, just to reiterate and to emphasize, the purpose of these, of all of these sessions is that you might be informed. Not to, not to tell you not to make these decisions. I don't know. Because whatever decision you make or, or turn away from, I won't live with those consequences. So it's important for me that when you hear these these sessions that you earn, that you look at the book and that you don't get tempted to say, Mayana said, Mayana thinks. I remember Mayana went up and up. If, in the, if it doesn't line up with the book, there's nothing in the book that says that man should not work. There are no examples of a man not working and sending his wife off to work while he sat at home just in case. The scriptures don't say it. If you make these decisions, make them from an informed position. That's it. That's it. That's all I ask because at the end of the day, I'm not going to be there. I won't. I, I won't take the the the. I won't have to deal with the consequences of your decision if you decide not to be in this kind of relationship. I won't have to live that life if you decide to be in that type of relationship, I don't have to live with those consequences either. So there's no reason to believe me or follow me. You need to say, I'm making these choices because it's right. I'm making these choices because Scripture says. I'm making these choices because as a daughter of the Most High, at the end of the day, they're going to ask me why I did it. And if I knew better, then there's no, there's no redemption for, for sin. Because I knew better. I did it anyway. I was told better. And even if I didn't believe my honor, I didn't go and investigate it. Because I was told and chose to be and chose to remain uninformed. So, again, these are the suppositions that you may have heard. These are the suppositions your sisters have heard. And we're addressing them to look at them for merit, to see if they're true. And this is not to question the paradigm, but to question the reasons, to question the justifications. Because the fact of the matter is, no matter how true a supposition is, if the reasoning don't, the reason is false. The reason is false, it just doesn't matter. You, you You can dissect the reason to death. If you, you just don't, if you make a decision based on off of a flawed premise, you've made a bad decision. At the end of the day, it's a bad decision. You don't even know why 
you did the right thing because you did it for the wrong reason, and that happens a lot. Getting, for example, getting married, getting married in general, amazing proposition. You absolutely, this is like a wonderful institution. If you do it for the wrong reason, it's still going to fail because what you went into it for was wrong. Your foundation is wrong. What you started off with was wrong. So when it starts to have problems, when you look back at why you got into it to begin with, you can't fall back on that because you just found out that point. Now what? Now what? When the reason you got into the situation falls to pieces, how are you going to sustain it? How do you fight for it? How do you preserve it? How do you how do you how do you survive in it? How do you make it thrive? If it if it starts to 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 fold, how do you save it? When you lose space in why you began it to begin with, so you need to be strong in why you started something. So that's why I'm going over these suppositions with you, so that when you make these decisions, you say, "I know why I'm making them. My supposition is correct. It's founded on Torah. It's founded on our scripture. It's founded on our culture, and it makes sense." So I can defend it from this position because I know that I'm right with the most part. That's it. That's all I want from you. That's it. That's why every time we get to a supposition, I'll tell you what the law says. I'll tell you what scripture says. I'll tell you what's not. There's an example of it in our culture. And then I'll stop and I'll ask you, what do you think? What do you have to say? Do you agree or disagree with something? What should we explore further? If you say nothing, that's on you. That's not on, you know, this is where we're going to do accountability. My accountability was to ask you. My accountability was to, my responsibility was to present it to you. Your responsibility is to ask questions now or research it later. That's what I have for 25. You're on, a man should not have to work. The women can take care of that. He has to be available to teach. There are no precedents for men staying at home and the women, you know, taking care of things for him. Or, let's just take that a little bit further, there's no precedence for if a man has a plot of land or he has a particular set of wealth and then that gets increased, that in order to maintain it, surely he has to bring in, you know, an extra woman because now he has more land so somebody has to fill it. Well, now that his wife has had a new baby, he has to wife someone else to help her take care of it. Okay, there's no precedence to that. That's an interesting logic. It's an interesting logic. It's a great, it's an it's a, it's a, uh, interesting theory. But there's no Hebraic basis for it. There's no Hebraic precedence for it. There's no example of that. You want to bring in a nanny? You want to have a handmaiden? Fine. He doesn't have to wife someone into the family because you had a new baby. I don't need to be his wife to be your sister. Crazy. Not necessarily insane to me. There's certainly no biblical precedent for sisterhood being dependent upon whether or not that sister is in a sexual relationship with your husband. That's a really uh, interesting kind of dialogue that gets introduced to sisters and sisters 
accepted in amazing numbers. Um, <clears throat> but that's that's it for 25. If there's anything to add to that, we'll add it now. If there's any questions or comments for we should do that now. If not, we'll go to 26. Supposition <clears throat> number 26. It's a man's right to have more than one wife. Is that true? That a man has the right No, it's absolutely not true that he has the right. Oh, why, why, why would my other say that? Okay, there's no scripture that says a man has the right to have more than one wife. Does not have that right, the most high, there's no, when you have the right to do something, there's a, it's, it's spelled out somewhere, and this is what you have the right to. You have the, but there's never the case that this is the endemic right of a man to collect women. And the fact that it happens, right? Again, we go into the principle of correlation and causation. Do men have multiple women in these? Um, in these situations and scenarios and, and conditions that we find them, in these culture conditions that we find them, in our Hebraic um, scrolls, in these Hebraic contexts, is it because he has the right? Like, does he say, I'm going to, I am going to do this because I have the right? In any of the cases, we, we have a number of cases of of uh, extended households. Are there any where the man says, it's Tuesday, and I have the right, I'm going to go pick up another woman? Any. We discussed the ways that these marriage models get constructed. In two of them, they are initiated by women. In the famous Isaiah 4 and 1, it's still initiated by women. There's no man saying, this is my right. I'm going to do this because I can. With a possible exception of spoil. And even then, it's not the right of men. It is the right of a particular man under a particular circumstance. And even then, he's not guaranteed to have all of his lives at the end of his day. Because it's, because we're told that Exodus twenty what is Exodus twenty one and twenty that they like to oh Exodus twenty one and ten that they like to go with like where if a man has um more than one wife that he can't uh, reduce her food raiment or duty of that. Great. We stop at twenty um ten, that's um, twenty one ten, it's like wow, there you go. This man has first of all, it doesn't address whether or not he has the right. But Exodus 21 and 11, which is the very, very next verse, you, you kind of have to side-eye when people stop you at, like, one verse. The next verse says that if she does these things, that the food, raiment, and duty of marriage decreases, she can leave. Leaves without money. She can leave. 
So it's not that he got this other woman and she had to endure it. He got this other woman, these things happened, and she left. So this is not a polygamous situation. This is this man under one of the lawful or sanctioned or maybe under, I don't know how, what the condition is, but once it was reduced, because it doesn't say. I don't know because it doesn't say. I don't know because I'm being crazy. I don't know because the scripture doesn't say. And I think it's a problem when you assume things. So it's a special little quality of mine that I don't assume things about scripture. And um, that's why I don't, I can't create scenarios based on my imagination or what I would like it to mean. So I don't know. I don't know what the condition is in 2110, but I know that in 2111 she can leave. So the twin, the, the one of the verses that are typically used to show that a polygamous environment can exist also, first of all, only addresses the right of that woman. It doesn't address his right at all. It addresses the right of that woman and that right, that woman's right to leave that situation. That's what's being described in Exodus 21. So, um, so again, the um, only place where we really get the right is where it says that if a warrior, soldier, uh, military man goes to war with another nation and wins, he is, he's entitled to spoil. Now, it's not that he has the right to women. You know, it's, like, it's not that specific. It's that he has the right to spoil. Spoil for a soldier is anything in this conquered land. It's animals, it's weaponry, it's uh, gold, it's land, it's women. Uh, it's anything of value that this conquered land has. Uh, so, yes, women are of value, women, specific women who have not known a man. That means she hasn't been defiled by these. Uh, granted, she not only has she not been defiled, um, by a man. She hasn't been defiled by these foreign men. It's a, it's a foreign culture and it's a foreign nation. It's not like if Judah, you know, defeats Benjamin. You know, it's not that. It's if you go and you defeat this foreign nation and you take their women, and she hasn't been defiled by the men of that land, and the men had the right to spoil. Now, let's emphasize the fact that these are men returning victorious from war. Not Walmart, not BJ's, not the butcher, not the baseball game. War. It's not the guy who, you know, works as a mechanic. It's not the guy who sits around your living room waiting for the most high sound of the alarm. It's the guy that went to war, lived, and brought that some kind of spoil. And it's not the, the, the Crips versus the Bloods kind of war. It's the one that the Most High sent him off to do, that one. So that addresses, um, is it a man's right to have more than one wife? It is the man's right to have more than one wife. Is the 26 supposition, this is our um, response to that. That's false. Or at, at minimum, it's manipulative because the conditions where a man might do that doesn't apply to most of the men we know. Uh, until there's a sanctioned, now granted, there will be sanctioned wars. The most I will procure send the men off to war at some point to conquer the other nations because we have to subdue them. 
eventually that will happen. All the men that live will have the right to spoil under if, if the uh, if the scriptures from if the Old Testament scriptures apply, then all of these men will have the right to spoil. That's what happens in our culture. What is that? But until then, the right is dubious. You can't just say, you know, here's my penis. I have the ability. No, you just don't do that. It's not everybody with a penis that has the right to more than one wife, and even then the wife doesn't have to endure uh, a situation because all the scriptures that we have really deal with the rights of women. Even in Deuteronomy, where it very clearly is in the context of a, a man returning victorious from war. That's the scripture that you usually hear with the man, with the uh if there's one wife that's loved and one wife that's hated, you guys heard that one? That's in Deuteronomy. That one is actually situated right smack in the middle of it being if the guy was a warrior, he returned home from war. So this, it gives you the context for how this woman might have been hated. You know, it's a really horrible kind of idea that there's this hated woman. I say, wow, there's one hated wife. How does this wife get kind of sucked into this, is it an epidemic of why they suddenly being hated? You know, but no. Some of these, the, in Deuteronomy specifically, it's dealing with times of war where women are taken from these other nations and um, as uh, object of spoil, she might be considered a wife by this type of warrior, military man. Are there any questions or comments about supposition number 26? Okay, I'm going to try to speak this up because we're bearing down on the 2 o'clock hour. Um, supposition number 27, rejection of polygamy is the rejecting of the will of the Most High. Okay, since there, is, there are no scriptures that say this is the will of the Father, we're not having that problem. It's not rejecting his will because there's nothing that says the Most High willed it, that polygamy is the will of the Father. To, to put it on the Most High is, for me, the height of manipulation. Say, oh, the Most High wants me to do it. The Most High uh, instituted this. The first time we see it, the first time we see it, it's not the Most High instituting any of it. So... There's no reason to believe that this is the, the will of the Father. In fact, when we see the the Most High being intimately connected to how marriage models are created and what kind of um, marriage paradigms are constructed, we get the first model, Adam. We talked about Adam and Eve uh, and it, the possibility of there having been this person, Lilith. But even if Adam and Lilith, uh, this credibility to that account. Lilith was not around when Eve was around. He didn't have them both at any particular time. He was married to one and then later married to the other. So there's always just this one-on-one model. Then there becomes a, um, from Cain, one of Cain's offsprings decides that he is going to be polygamous. He does that. Cain's offspring does that. It doesn't happen in the line of 
success that happens with Cain. And when we started aspiring to be like Cain, I don't know, I'm pretty sure Cain got kicked out so that it's not the will of the Most High happening over there. What the Most High created was Adam and his one help, the one person that was meet for him. Um, then, you know, everything spirals out of control. Suddenly everybody's doing what they want. The Most High says that mankind imagines only evil continuously. So he lamented that he created us and says, bump that, I'm going to start over. So he's ready to start over. When he starts over, he sees Noah. He says that Noah is perfect. Perfect in all of his generations. Noah is, you know, you can say that whatever you, whatever you want to say about that, but Noah is perfect. Out of his generations, he was in contact with all other imperfect people. Out of imperfect people, he's perfect. Uh, so Noah is, is the husband of one wife. And the most I take that man and that marriage model and recreates everything. Everything is recreated when, when the world is essentially reset. When creation is essentially reset, the marriage model that gets reset with it is the marriage model of one man and one woman. Noah has one wife. Not only does Noah have one wife, Noah has three sons. That's three opportunities to look at a marriage model. How are these next three marriage models reproduced? Ham, one wife. Japheth, one wife. Sam, one wife. So we have this marriage. We have what's going to be, what the Most High is going to be, I'm going to reproduce um, this marriage model. I'm choosing Noah. I consider Noah perfect. And this is the marriage model that gets you reproduced with it. Now, I'm not saying this is causation. I'm not saying that Noah was perfect because he was the husband of one wife. I didn't say that. It could very well be a correlative fact. Fact A, Noah was perfect. Fact B, he was also the husband of one wife. This correlation goes down the goes down the line. I'm not going to say correlation scripture doesn't say he was perfect because he had one wife. Because he was perfect and he had one wife. Those are just the way the facts are organized in the account. But in either event, when the most high when we see the most high's will, not the will of men and not what happened in men and the most high allowed. What the most high's will was when he is actively involved in something. That's the marriage model that we see duplicated. Understood? Uh, so, subversion on the screen, self-rejection of polygamy is rejecting the will of the father. Oh. Any comments on that? 28, rejection of polygamy is rejecting the entire culture. You cannot pick and choose. Okay, so, this is true. You absolutely cannot take and choose. I like this part of the culture. I don't like that part of the culture. I like covering my head and wearing long flowing shirts. That's fun. I don't like, you know, that I can't, whatever. You can't do that. That is absolutely true. But rejection of polygamy is rejecting the entire culture against manipulative because it presumes that polygamy is a requisite of the culture. It isn't. Polygamy is not a requisite is not required of the culture. So to say I don't want to participate in polygamy is not to say I 
uh, eschew the culture and, you know, I have a problem with the culture. You don't, you're not accomplishing that. If polygamy was a requisite of the culture, if it was something that you couldn't, you, you, that you couldn't, there was the only marriage model in, in the culture and you couldn't avoid it in the culture, it wasn't, if it was a staple of some sort, the most high, it was written in the law somewhere, then for you to say or to have a negative or for you to say, I don't want to participate in that, that's a rejection of the culture. And, and by rejecting part of the culture, you know, you can't, you can't say that you're sincere about the entire culture because you rejected a part of it. And that is true. But polygamy does not have that, does not have that position in our culture. So you, if you are to say, listen, that's not for me, I don't want to participate, I'm not, I'm not participating in, in that paradigm. You are not rejecting the most high, and you're not rejecting the culture because polygamy is not our culture. It's not our culture. It's something that exists in a very specific, very particular context occurred in our culture. And the way it's reimagined and represented in modernity doesn't, in many cases, doesn't even reflect the way it, it doesn't even resemble the way it used to occur in our Hebrew context anyway. So that's 28. In the interest of time, I want to move past that unless there's any questions. 29, it is a special perquisite of the men due to their Israeliteness. Perquisite is a word. It's just a, is a word that's not common, but it's a it's short form. It's very very common. Perquisite is the full word for the very common word perk. When we say perk, it's just kind of shortening this really cool word perquisite. Um, so it's a special perk of the men due to their Israeliteness. Okay, so we we just discussed that. The first time polygamy is is uh, practiced or presented to us, it's not by anybody Israelite. It's not by the Israelite. It's not by anyone who's an ancestor of the Israelite. Our ancestor is Seth. First person to practice is Cain. So obviously, this is not a perk given to Israelites. Furthermore, it's not a perk given to Israelites because every other, in many other times that we see in practice, it's practiced by other nations, heathen nations, nations that under every other circumstances, we don't want to emulate them. They're the ones doing it. So it cannot be the special purpose of Israelites when all of these other nations are doing it. That can't be. To make it special because you're an Israelite, but really no one else can do it. For it to be holy and set apart, that means no one else is doing it. But everybody's doing it. We want to be like other nations. Other nations are doing it. We see how the, uh, the, a lot of the relationships that David and Solomon are having are political. It's due to the interactions with other nations. Part of, part of treaties and contracts and all these other things, when these powerful men got together to negotiate peace, to negotiate space, to negotiate trade, the way they sealed these things were not with the kids. They sealed them with the I want a princess. Let me throw in my daughter. I'm going to sign this parchment. I got a couple of sheep, and here's my daughter. That's how that got down. That's 
that was how powerful men negotiated things then. Not because the woman was not valuable. Let's not get that. Let's not. Let's not say, oh, she was no more valuable than the the goats and the sheep, and we had addicts to sweeten the deal. No, the fact is that by including the daughter, they included blood ties. She accomplishes for that agreement with no cow, no goat, no no measure of, of fine linen or gold to do. She potentially created a blood tie. You're not related to me. If there's any children by this woman, we have blood between us. So there's a blood tie in those contracts. These political agreements between these powerful men has this blood on it when they threw in a daughter. So uh, to say that this was a special purpose of me due to the Israelites, obviously Any questions about that? Okay, um, numbers, well, let me check the chat because I haven't been doing that. Only is there anybody in chat saying anything? No. Um, let's see. 29. That it's a personal calling or permission directly from the most high. See, now that's, and I can't true or false that. You know, how do, I, how do I know what your dream was? You know, how do I know what vision you say you had? I, like, I, I, don't, I don't know. So, and that's just manipulative. Like, is it true? Could, could, is it possible that the Most High is talking to some of these men? I don't know. That's, 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 that's uh, something that I've heard brothers say. The Most High spoke to me and said that this is something I need to do. Either A, you're lying. Be just schizophrenic. You're hearing voices. You disconnected from reality. What should just happen to you? I don't know. And and asking me to know feels manipulative. So you know, with that supposition doing us, there's nothing you can really do with that. If you choose to believe that this man has a calling. What's interesting about <clears throat> that? So we hear if you if you were to put that under the label of prophecy or the fact that the most that the prophets heard the voice of the most high. What the most high says to you, like I said, I don't know if he's lying, what the most high says about uh, false prophets is that in order do you guys know how to know whether or not a prophecy is true if a prophet is being truthful with you? What he says will come to pass. What he says will come to pass. The other thing that we know about yeah, something that a person says, there should be a witness, especially for some, even even if it's from the most high. Like, you know, when in the new in the common era, where there are all these people claiming to be speaking in tongues, we were immediately warned that if there's no one there to translate it. You should not fall for that. So, you know, it's it, 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 it really kind of tricky. You know, the scripture tells you that there should be someone to translate something that is being said to be of the most high. The real prophets, what they prophesy comes to pass. They're not just talking, they're not just going away, what they say comes to pass. Um, 
So it's an interesting point. It's like kind of one of those things that you can't really argue with logic because it's a it's it's not a substantive supposition. It's not something that you can. So like for example, when you uh, you see criminals who are being questioned, and the attorney says, "Is it true that you, you know, whatever?" Uh, the guy goes, "Well, I don't call." It's like the best response because no one can argue what you remember, and so they can, unless you can kind of trip them up and say, yeah, "But you remember this, this, and this." So attorneys really hate it when the person on the stand says, "I don't recall," because it's the kind of response that doesn't have a logical end for you to go in and dissect it because it's already so abstract and lofty and out of the realm of logic that it can't be interrogated that way. In the same way that evolution, for example, evolution is a theory that expects for things to happen over billions and trillions, you know, billions of years. People don't have that kind of life expectancy. So the arguments with evolution go back and forth, back and forth, because there's no way to quantify it. You don't qualify. You can't go in and observe billions of years. So this argument is just like, you know, you can only argue a theory in theory. So that's the same thing. There's really no way to go in and say, I didn't hear the most high saying, because the most high wasn't talking to you, talking to me. This is a really, you know, kind of swampy area to tread. Anyone have anything to say about that? That the the male may uh, submit that he was called directly from the Most High to accumulate these extra women. No? Okay, nation building. Now, nation building is an interesting and probably very common supposition. But the problem with that is that nation building is not the same as building. Populating is making lots of babies. Nation building is establishing law, establishing government, establishing uh, industry, establishing uh, trade, having currency, having autonomy. Those things are nation building. When you build a nation, you build those things. When you populate that nation, you have lots of sex and lots of women and lots of babies. That's Populating. That's uh, that's what slave masters did with viable black men. They took him and bred him out with all of the women possible. He just took what they called bucks. They enabled our men bucks, all the strong, virile, capable men, and bred them like an animal. And that's was being substituted for nation building. I need to breed. I'm going to breed with all available females. That's a misnomer to call it nation building. That's not nation building. That's that's uh, a high functioning buck. That's it. The common tool of slavery. It's the evidence of a the remnants of a slave mentality that what he needs to do is breed with women as a as a virile, fertile male, his job is to breed with all the black women. That's what Fox did. That's a, a leftover 
remnant of the slave mentality. That's what I call that's what I call the buck syndrome. They they breed them up, and and then what's so crazy about that is they say that that's nation building, but how are you building a nation when you can't even feed these children? When you can't even provide shelter for these children, you you just basically putting them back situation that's not. Them living well, right, right. And we discussed it a little bit earlier at the top of the session, and we mentioned it in previous sessions because I think that Oni um, is going to probably build a little more on that when we talk about inheritance and heirship. These children aren't just your ability to introduce your siblings to her egg. Once that child is born, that child is entitled to something. A lot of things. And the problem is that the men are only thinking this, and this is a problem, and I don't know why women are allowing it. It's a problem for the men to not be thinking past ejaculation. The fact that a man can say to you, listen, I can make a lot of babies, tells you he's not thinking about raising any of them. What happens once they're here? What happens after you nut? and I have to nurture. And then, fine, for 40 weeks, that baby's in me. Then once it breaks free, it's in the, I have, this, that baby wants to eat. That baby needs clothes. That baby needs attention. That baby needs uh, affection. It needs guidance. It needs to learn things. Where will you be? And, you know, if you do a child of this, as is all these children, where, and we talk. It's so interesting because men will complain endlessly. Oh, all these households don't have a father in the home. What about the father's influence? Dude, where's your influence? What are you thinking about when you think about you need to make all these babies? What is your influence going to be with all of these babies? How much time are you spending? What are you doing? These children have 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 the right to say. According to our culture, all of these children have a right to an inheritance. The first one entitled to a double portion. So what, what are you going to say? You know, nothing from nothing to use nothing? I mean, you've got, you're going to give the eldest double portions of nothing? What are you leaving them? The Jordans? I don't understand. We don't understand what they're talking about. It's not nation building. And you're not even populating correctly. You're not nation building according to Hebrew culture. You're not even populating according to Hebrew culture. So let's not have that conversation. Like you said before, um, when people talk about nation building, about having breeding up all of these women and having all of these children, um, they forget all of the other parts of it as far as, well, (laughs) what are we going to leave these children when we're gone? Um, what legacy are we going to have? Our people have a tendency to live for the here and now. They don't prepare for the future or for the next generation. They do that all the time. It's consistent. What is pleasurable for me now, I really don't care about the next generation. So, you know, me having sex with all of these women is pleasurable for me now. Me um, having all of these babies for this man and, and all of these women having all these babies for this man, you know, this is this is cute. For now, 
But what happens when the sex is done and the baby is here and the babies are here and you can't provide for these children? Oh, then they go on welfare and somebody else helps take care of those children. Or they um, have the social services and somebody else takes care of those children. That's not Hebrew culture. A man is supposed to be able to take care of his house. And if he can't do that, then he shouldn't be married and he shouldn't be having children. Right. And I mean, I'm going to add to that because it's so common that you hear. And the excuse that follows that is, well, this is a woman's world. This is oh, you, this is where you guys have power, so we can't do that. We weren't, we don't have the ability to, you know, work or provide for the same like we want to. So we need you to do that as well as host the child and raise it, and nurture it, et cetera. So it's like, okay, well, if, if they're going to pick a side that they're in, they're in some mental slavery or have some prohibition against doing something manly or being a man, then they should probably just keep their things in their pants and you know live in that life. But until you can come up out of that that um pro, pro, uh, I don't know, you can come out of that mindset of you can't do or be successful as a man in this, this world that you live in, then you probably shouldn't have families or, or wives or sick your thing in anybody. So it's like they, they know they have this, this cop out but then it's just destructive just destructive all over the place. And it's so confusing because um like pick a side. Like are you this this king, this you know, this this God given prophet and you know, all these things they say that they're entitled to these families and these babies and all these women, but then they flip it, you know, after the baby's here, like, Well, I can't do that 'cause I'm it's not the world for that. I'm I'm like I'm confused. Pick a side, pick just pick pick a side. You know, and then live in that. Accept that, live it. That's reminiscent of a couple of things. That's reminiscent of the the fact that there are so many brothers that want the authority but they don't want the accountability. There's a, it's also reminiscent of a very common thing, a common saying that a lot of us are saying yeah in light of all of the political upheaval, all of the criminal upheaval, uh, all of the atrocities against black bodies. We're saying that all of the people want to be black until it's time to be black. Mm-hmm. Um, Want to be king until it's time to be king. To be king, right? That reminds me of that this song. Um, you wanna be the boss, you gotta pay the cost. <laughs> but he don't wanna pay the cost, but he wanna be the boss. Right. You know what? And that, but you know what? That got it goes back to what I was saying earlier. A lot of us just let them. Yeah. Right. This is great. Oh, so, he can't do it. Oh, I'll do it. Boo, boo. No, no, no. Mm. no. There's been sisters even who are dealing with men who are not even really in the walk. The men are not really even in the walk. But these men have wives already. They have a wife already. And those sisters knowing the the Torah will say to them, oh, and you know you can have another wife, right? Yeah. <laughs> Why would you tell this man who's not really even in the walk that he can have another wife yeah, and yeah, yeah. not even in the walk? Why would you give that type of power to a man who's not even proven himself to be a walker in Torah? And women find these things, <clears throat> they allow these things, and then when they all backfire, then it's woe with me. And yeah. I can tell you, I am not. <laughs> I when when if Mayana can tell you, I am a little more harder on the women 
than anything because some of the decisions that we make as women, it's, it didn't even have to happen that way. Right. It's just all, it's all craziness. A lot to do. It's a reflection on this craze to get married. Like there's a in, in our current condition, women are almost like herded into these marriage institutions. Like you have to get married. You know, even even to the even to the extreme that these women believe that if they don't get married, they can't go into the kingdom. Like you have to swipe your yeah. your wife card. At the gate, or you can't. That these men have managed to tie themselves to our sisterhood, to our daughter. Like we, we, in order to be good sisters, we have to do these things. Um, to our daughterhood, in order to be good daughters, we have to do these things. Uh, in order to have access to the king, I mean, they tie themselves even to our access. To our father and the kingdom. Crazy. Now, I'm actually heard. <laughs> I've heard with my own ears that women, okay, so here we, we better be okay with being the first, second, third, whatever wife, have these babies, help quote unquote nation build. Because in the kingdom, when these guys get their power, they're not going to really need you. You're not going to, you're not going to buck up against anything. You're going to be begging for this role because ultimately they could just, you know, and snap their fingers and babies are born up, and you won't even be needed now. It's, and I'm like, like how, how do they go so far in their minds to, to, to associate that power with them? Like, I, I don't, I'm like, so now you're the most high, and you can, you know, just make dirt and make a baby now or make a person, and um, you, don't, you don't need the process that he's created from the beginning of time to unify a man and a woman and to, be, to multiply, to provide for that child, to grow it, and grow it and teach it the ways of life. I'm like, I mean, it's like cuckooness out here. I'm like, I Twilight Zone. Um, it's, but we're it's probably in one of the camp manuals. It's not in scripture. Oh, yeah. What it is. The camp manual. You know, some, I don't know, secret book, some secret handshake. I don't know. Uh, it's like on par with Freemasonry, like madness. They have, I mean, it sounds very X-Men. I like it. Uh, but it, it doesn't sound very Torah. But, but, I mean, but it sounds really homosexual to like, there's no women. You don't need us no more. It's a bunch of dudes, and then you guys having your own babies. Like, I don't understand what happened. First of all, the most high is the one who decided that you needed women. So when did you go and revoke <laughs> the decision of the most high? I don't know. What scripture they have? Uh, again, maybe it's written in one of the camp manuals. It's not in scripture. The most high said, and it, Genesis is very, very clear. People... And you know, and you know this because you've spoken to me before. When we go over Genesis, I'm very partial to Genesis because it's the beginning. So whenever I talk to sisters, I like for them to begin in the beginning. And mostly because I know that when we read Genesis, we skip a lot. We skip a lot. A lot of it is like on autoplay in our heads. And even when we're reading it, we're not reading it for comprehension. So in Genesis, there's the account of when the Most High makes the decision that he's going to create Eve, Eve, specifically Eve, for Adam, for this particular man. 
And it, it, it says that there comes a point where in observing Adam or observing the man, it's not good for this man to be alone. Everything outside of the companion, it's not good for this man to be alone. So he brings, this is important, he brings everything to Adam, everything. Every manner of beast comes to Adam. And out of all the beasts, and this is that he can find nothing that's suitable for Adam. And that's just like why, like, when you read it, it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's an interesting exercise. But no, it's not an interesting exercise. It's an important exercise. Because what does that tell you? It tells you out of everything that the Most High had created, out of everything walking and breathing in the world, Nothing, nothing was suitable until Eve. When you, when he presented Eve, he presented the only suitable thing on the planet. Because nothing else was good enough. He did, now, mind you, what was meat worthy, suitable, and appropriate for man was not a dog. Dog is not man's best friend. The most let me give what's suitable, worthy, and appropriate. It wasn't his brother. He just said, let me make more brothers. He made Eve. So, the most highest decision for what's worthy, suitable, and appropriate for you was her. That was the most highest decision. When the most high said, be fruitful and multiply, he said it to male and female. Make me female. Male and female made he them, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. When did you decide that the most high, that there was the most high said, doesn't matter, because your X-Men abilities are going to kick in, and you're going to overrule what the most high has said. Or is it the point of the kingdom to restore order? Correct me, I'm, I'm open. Somebody put me on. Are we not supposed to return to order to to correct things and go back to the original order? Or are we going to overrule the most high order and create this alternate universe? Because men in the men alone get these X-Men abilities. I, I, I happen to like the X-Men. So the idea of that, because I told you, like, we read Jasha, I think Judah is amazing. I find Judah amazing. I love this about Judah. Yeah, Judah has I, excellent abilities. I love this. I but, can second um, that, but why? why I mean, if it happens, it doesn't happen. I don't know. I don't, I don't know the future. But when it, if it, if say it did, why use it to destroy this union? Like what he said, we, we, it was obviously established that women, it, it was a good thing. And she was a wonderful thing for him, for a man. Why destroy things with your power? Why why go against what has been set before you from the beginning of time? Like why use this power now? It sounds it sounds evil. Like destroy all the women. We don't need them. We just use their power. It's the psychology of the men because what you're discussing is the psychology and the emotionalism of the men. But none of these things are in scripture. None of this is supported by any of our souls that the men are going to turn on the creation of the Most High, i.e., us that he is going to turn on us and decide that we know that the daughters of the most high. So it's not they forget who we are. Like in their imaginations, they, only, they can only perceive us 
as we relate to them. Those are our wives. Those are our women. So we can do with or do away with them as we please. (laughs) But the problem with that is that we're not just who we are in relationship Mm -hmm. to them. We are also the daughters of the Most High. The Most High has seen fit in several instances on several occasions to deal directly with his daughters. Why? Because we're his daughters. Bypassing them. Dealing directly with women. You either A, speaking directly with women, using directly women to do directly uh, affect a a cause, um, and saving women. Susanna spoke to her father, and the Most High heard her. I love that verse. Everybody knows that my favorite verse is that Susanna prayed to the Most High and the Most High, and he heard her. The verse is, and he heard her. It's my favorite. And he heard her. Rebecca wanted to find out what was did. The Most High spoke to her and told her what the deal was. Abraham already had a child, had descendants, had an heir. Most of us I choose Sarah. I don't care that you have a son. I want Sarah. This is a very long conversation. This is not this is not over a couple of verses. This is Ad, this is Abraham arguing the most high down. And he doesn't actually this is crazy. If Abraham doesn't accept the will of the most high. He argues with him. The most high said it has to be Sarah. Abraham says why? It has to be it has to be Sarah. The most high, Abraham says, Don't worry about that. Just bless Ishmael. Really? If it was up to Abraham, Ishmael wouldn't have been the one to get the blessing. If it was up to Isaac, don't be misunderstood. Don't mistake it. Don't get it messed up. If it was up to your patriarchs, none of us would have anything. According to Abraham, it would be Ishmael. According to Isaac, it would have been Esau. You forget who Isaac's favorite was? It wasn't Chubabu. It was Esau. Rebecca's favorite, Jacob. Not Isaac. You, these men forget who their mothers are. They forget who loved, nurtured, and protected them. It was their mothers. Moses. Moses was protected by his sister Miriam, not not Aaron. It was Miriam that watched him. Just to see who picked him up. It was Miriam who ran to that woman and said, "Listen, he there's a Hebrew woman who can understand." What her sister? This was. You forget who your mothers and your sisters are. Crazy to me how these men forget who we are, who we are, and think that when the kingdom comes, it's about them. But That's you know, sisters, if you think about your daughter stages, your sister stages, your your, your woman stages, your wife stages, or your mother stages, and your widow stages, because you are there, you are present in scripture. If you don't know who you are. According to this culture, you let them reduce you, either either a, erase you completely from the narrative or reduce you to a footnote because you don't know any better. But you need to understand these things. No, we don't have the same placement. But, we have, but the most high doesn't value his daughters. Our purposes are different. Our placement is different. But the most high never said we without value, never said we without what, and actually, 
absolutely never said they could replace us. Not, not, not our personhood, not our nationhood, and not our womanhood. No, you're not going to just swap us out with other nations. No, you're not going to deal with or do away with us as you please. What is, we are the daughters of the Most High. You don't get to change that. That's the, why your daughter's age is so important. That's why I emphasize the daughter's age so much. Because once you understand your value as a daughter, then the idea that you can be replaced as a wife doesn't 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 have the same shock value. Because you can look at that and be like, "Yeah, I was." <laughs> as a daughter, you can say that. But if you walked in and all you understood about your entire identity was wife. When someone comes and questions your space as a wife, you lost. Because your whole identity was constructed around that space. You missed being a daughter. You missed being a sister. You missed being a woman. So all you know about your full identity is who you are according to whose wife you are. It wasn't that you became a mother. What, um, I don't know if you got this from the, um, the camp manual that the men are going to have huge penises and they're going to be able to throw them over their um their shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you hear that one from the camp manual? <laughs> the, the male preoccupation with his penis is legendary. <laughs> are you, are you, are like, what? <laughs> yeah, you know, let me tell you something about that. That's really, really, and we laugh. We laugh, sister. We laugh, but you know what? It's really kind of it's kind of sad. It is. But let me tell you why it's sad. We get upset. It's interesting, and it's, it's just it's just why it's cool that the the people that I, I hang out with at the university are very intelligent men, and they uh, interrogate black history, black culture, uh, black iconography. And it was interesting to hear them have this discussion. It's really amazingly intellectual um, black men. And they were talking about how uh, we get very angry about certain stereotypes. We, uh, black masculinity is stereotyped in, in, in the idea of being savage and being bestial and being um, subpar intellectually, and we rail against those um, assumptions and myths about black masculinity. But we adopt and embrace and even protect other assumptions about black masculinity. Among those is their huge penises, their sexual prowess. Now, forgetting that that's still connected to the idea of them being bestial and savage. The reason why white men are always talking about how big your black dick is, is not because they're like, wow, that's awesome. It's like, Wow, you're like an animal. They they're built like horses. Like they they're still necessarily putting you in this beastly category. They're not complimenting you. They're not in awe of you. You're still this disgusting, deformed, savage beast that is is ruled by your perversion and ruled by your sexuality because your organ is so misproportioned. That your penis is so big, therefore your lust is bigger, your inability to contain yourself is bigger, your your savagery is uncontrollable, and it's all connected to this um to this, you know, organ. 
And as black men, they still like that. Like, you know, they still talk about, yeah, my my, my, my balls is my, you know, my, you know, they're always talking about their penises. And black men still, like, yeah, you, y'all know, um, uh, you, you black women, you want our penises. Like, and they, they, it's, the, it's the same. They, they still embrace that. Um, it's the total opposite with the black woman. She, her behind. Every picture she posts on Facebook has to be the big butt um, shot. Um, she relates only to her body, her physical appearance, because she wants that attention. Black men do the, oh, shoot. Black men do the same thing. Um, and like you said, they're not getting the fact that those things, you're you're only perpetuating exactly. how the other nations see you. Right, right, right. We That's are accepting good. and reproducing the same negative opinions about our our physical bodies that have been foisted upon us, and that we we want to say we don't want to be understood as fetishes. We don't want to be under. We don't want to be fetishized. We want to. We don't want to be understood as show freaks. We don't want to be part of your world fair exhibits. We don't want to do that. But then we talk about, you know, and we emphasize those same characteristics and say these are the things that we're going to put on display for you as um, evidence of our value. Because this is the furthest that I'm worth. I'm not worth the intelligence that I might have. I'm I'm just worth this big... um, Black woman booty shot. Right. Penal shot. I'm worth that. But I'm not worth anything else. That's what people, we're saying every single time that we do things like that. Yeah. And like you said, oh, well, that's a stereotype. But then we go and say the same negative things that these other nations say. And I've even been told, well, um, well, I've ever heard somebody say, well, if y'all don't like these stereotypes, why do you keep doing these things on your videos, your music videos? And you say certain things, but you don't want the stereotypes. How can you dispute that? I can I can dispute it because I don't listen to that kind of music. I don't watch those kind of videos. I listen to K-pop, so... I'm completely out of there. I don't know. I, 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 they're not shooting those videos, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I can't say. I, I yeah, I don't. I don't agree with that. I never thought those things were cool. I didn't embrace those kinds of ideologies. Even in my youth, those were not things that I privileged as valuable about my people. You know what I'm saying? So, but then again, like I said, you know, it's always in my experience. I don't always know. Really, you know, I'm actually in my youth, I had more of a wider spectrum. There were different types of young people. But I, I still knew very accomplished young people, even as much as I knew people who wanted to cut school and do what they did or whatever. But I knew a lot of award-winning athletes and academics. And, you know, I, I went to debate tournaments. So, you know, so I don't know, my access to, to black to, to good black examples have been consistent. I, I the way I imagine the, the guy who won the debate tournament was a black guy. He, and my daughter, my daughter graduated this year. The 
the freaking valedictorian. Mind you, this is a mixed school. She doesn't go to an all-black school. It's the valedictorian is, is the Mexican, I believe, but the salute was a Mexican male. But the salutatorian was a black female. I mean, so, I mean, the the boys at her school winning awards in their in their in their fields. The boys that I went to school with, because like I was in the debate team, I was on Model Congress, I was um, part of the, the the newspaper. So these are all <laughs> but the black people on these teams with me, amazing, amazing young men, you know. Amazing, and so I, I don't, I don't, I just, I have never been able to completely accept the idea that our young men have to be, have to underachieve. Like they have to, they have to. You don't, you don't have to make, especially with everything. If you know. All of these things are against you. You don't have to make decisions to contribute to the things that are already against you. If you're in a hostile environment, you don't self-destruct. Right? What? When does your self-preservation kick in? When you're in a hostile situation, you self-preserve. You you strive. You struggle through. On my profile and on only your profile and on other women that I associate closely with. All these profiles are littered with young children who are excelling because that's that's the world we envision. That's the world we acknowledge. These young kids who are excelling, these young children who are excelling in classical music that are uh, attending universities in their teens that are inventing life-saving apparatuses uh, that are that that are pursuing uh, interest in physics, I mean, accomplishing feats in mathematics, like excelling in athletics. These are the things that we understand about our people. So these are the things that you see on our pages. Yeah, exactly. But your last <laughs> thing is um, how do we, um, what is it, Fidel- infidelity, how, what is it? Oh, God. Huh? Well, you talking about the final supposition? Yeah. The final supposition that men tend to posit is that polygamy is the solution to infidelity. That because men have this absurd sex drive that can't possibly be satiated by one woman, clearly they need several women in their stables because they are just so sexually insatiable. So essentially, they want to be rewarded for lust. Essentially, they're saying, since we're going to cheat on you anyway, you might as well let us marry them and, you know, y'all just be friends. Okay, no one sees the problem with that. I don't even see how that becomes a statement that they say with a straight face and how there's any Israelite woman that goes, true, that makes sense. No, no, no. What he just said was, he's lustful. And because he can't control his lust, you need to reward him with more women. And you said, okay, that sounds righteous. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Men do not have a sexual productivity that we don't have. Productivity that we don't have. Women are sexual beings as well. The fact that women achieve uh, fidelity is because we are making conscious decisions 
to be faithful to our men. Not because we suddenly have this genetic defect that uh, once once we become married or once we become we fall in love with you, that suddenly all of our sexual spells and and, 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 and inclinations they just shut down. There's some power switch that gets pushed or flipped, because, and we only see it. That doesn't happen. Other men remain attractive. Other men, you know, are still visibly like on our radar. What happens is we say that's not something for me to pursue. I have this at home to protect. Women do that. Good women. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, obviously, there are women who don't make those decisions. But the women who you marry that are faithful and loyal to you are not faithful and loyal to you because somebody reached in and snatched her eyeballs out. That didn't happen. They didn't, they didn't tie up her ability to be attracted to someone else. She's making conscious, deliberate efforts to be faithful to you, not to pursue that, but to protect this. And for women, men love this, women like to... In, uh, manipulate the New Testament uh, verse that says women are the weaker vessel. We love that. You are the weaker vessel. If we, and your perception of being weaker, the weaker vessel, can manage to not pursue that but to protect this, why can't you? You being the stronger uh, potential vessel for all these X-Men powers, why can't you keep it in your pants? Why can't you control your life. You can't do that. You being a man, you can't do that, but we can do it. You think that, it, 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 it's just a, a, a part of the reason why um, men don't, some men, not all men, some men don't fully appreciate their wives at home is because they believe that she's faithful to him because she, she just you know, you had no choice. Like, so there's some something on on a biological level just kind of shut down and doesn't cheat on him because it can't. But he suddenly became the most important thing in the universe because, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what manner of uh, egocentricity is at play that makes the man feel like she couldn't possibly, that he's the only one that still has desires and that she doesn't. So it's because she doesn't have any desires that she's not cheating on me. If you believe that, if you feel like the only reason woman is not cheating on you is because she can't, then you don't appreciate it. It's different. It's different. It's like if the, the, person who, the person who doesn't buy drugs because they don't have any money isn't the same as the person who has money and is choosing not to to engage in illicit activity. It's different because that person could do it and isn't. Not this person can't do it and is. It's different. You have a different level of respect for the person who is choosing on their own power to avoid the ability and still do the right thing. That's different than the person who can't because they have nothing. So so if the men have us in this category of she's not doing it because she can't, he doesn't appreciate that. He doesn't appreciate that, but if he understood that his wife, when she does it every day, that she comes straight home to him, every day, 
that she didn't cheat on him. Every day that she didn't go and fall into temptation is a testament to how much she loves and, and respects and desires to protect their union and his, his pride and his ability to walk out in the neighborhood and not have everybody on the block say, I hit that. And not only that, that's self-control. Because the fact is that that woman, the fact that that woman did that, he does not understand that she has made a deliberate effort to do that because she loves him, respects him, and wants to protect their marriage, that he doesn't really appreciate her because he thinks that it's just like some sense of entitlement. He didn't earn it. He doesn't deserve it. She didn't, you know, it's just a, it's just a fact. But if he understood that every day she could, and when she went to work and all those guys were talking to her, and when she, and she turned down, like he wanted to buy her lunch for her, um, because she's like, you know, I'm not going to let this man feel like he can buy me a meal. My man got me. And she turned that down. And when every time that some guy came and, and, and appreciated the outfit that he didn't notice, Every time she does that, it comes straight home to him. If he doesn't appreciate all of those moments, then he doesn't. Then he's not really understanding what he has in her, because he doesn't see it. He's not talking that up. But my woman fought for me today. <clears throat> my woman fought for this marriage today. She preserved it. She respected me today. I have all these reasons to be proud today. He doesn't think of those things. Not a man will come to you and say to you, oh, but I have needs. Oh, she's sexy. I can't control myself. You don't understand. My nigga, yo, <laughs> I try not to say things like that, but for real. Like, bruh, believe me, we understand those things. Exactly. And I think that many... We're not sexual beings. We are sexual beings. And it, it takes a lot of self-control to not act on your sexual, the things that you want to do by desire and sex. It, it takes a lot of self-control. One other thing, too, is that women and men are groomed differently. And my husband tells me all the time, he was like, uh, um, you know what, Sadiqa? I had my uncle's. I had my cousins, my male cousins, and we was taught, hit everything you can. You know, um, that's my boy. That's my son. Yeah, he got that. He got that. I said, well, as a girl, coming from, and my family is also from the South, just like his, we weren't taught that. We was taught, keep your legs closed. That's right. Don't do, we were being groomed for self-control. They were being groomed to not practice self-control. Right. I was being groomed that no, whatever my sexual desires was, that I needed to contain that and not act on it. Because it was, as I'm sure all of us know, there have been women still to this day and girls when we were growing up, they didn't have that type of self-control. So whatever desire they got, they went forward. So they had multiple partners. Um, I remember... I went to college with a girl. She had three partners in one day. Wow. And three individual sessions. And I'm like, really? Yeah. You have to learn how to contain that. We teach our daughters that, but we need to also teach our sons that. That's why I post 
before in the women's group that I, I don't think our forefathers, and like Mariana said before, when I say forefathers, I mean Abraham, Jacob, and um, Isaac. I'm not talking about anybody else. Those three men, they weren't always preoccupied about who they're going to stick their penises in. Right. They had other things to think about than that. Whereas now, and I truly, truly believe that there's a demon that's running rampant on this earth right now, and it's a sexual demon because even women have gotten so loose. And the things that I hear that women are doing, and they will allow their husbands to do, and their husbands will allow. It's just craziness. And they're saying under saying each other, oh, I'm Israel. And they give themselves these Hebrew names. And you're like, wow, really? She did what? And he did what? And, right. and, and then they go, oh, well, you, should, you, you don't need to know what's going on in our bedroom. Then don't bring your stuff out of your bedroom. But it's unlawful for you to be bringing all of these different people into your bed. It, it very much is. It very much. I want to touch on some things quickly. Um, one, we talked earlier about the fact that in our, cause, you know, since Ike and I are maybe a little bit older than some of you, but um, we, only and I might be a little bit older, but when we were coming up, there were very clearly defined different gender expectations. And boys and girls are socialized differently because boys and girls are going to be perceived differently. Now, it's understood that the socialization is not biblical. Okay? We weren't socialized, uh, even as young people, that boys being uh, more promiscuous was permissive, was permissible because that's scripture. We're just saying that when we were younger, the the gender expectations were very clear. That women were the idea of modesty was was still um, imposed and and presented to girls. Whereas the idea of accountability and obviously because accountability is not being introduced in the socialization. So whatever uh, brother might hear. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, we were raised that way. Everybody, society already knows that we're going to go out and and hit anything we can't. Yeah, okay, um, that's not Hebraic, so don't celebrate that because we none of our nothing in our culture tells you to go hit everything, and you're not supposed to go taste all these things. You were supposed to be accountable for whatever went in the house. So uh, what you were hearing in that period was wrong. So uh, from the time when you and I were younger. So now that that those very clear social aspect gender uh, differences have eroded, and now the little girls aren't necessarily given that same push for modesty. It's it's a, actually has to be like an entire movement for, uh, and it's a, it's a it's a kind of alternate movement to tell a woman that she should be modest and preserve her her modesty and femininity and, and wait wait for one person to commit to forever. That's a, a radical idea, you know, now. Because uh, women are told that there are no gender expectations. If if the, if you want to do it, if it feels good, do it. I mean, that's kind of, now, now our kids are giving this free, permissive environment. They, it's no longer the case that women are really looked down upon. Like before, when we, when we were younger, um, when we, to do certain things was looked down upon. Like for a girl to do it, 
you would still get a good deal of social backlash. Like getting side-eyed would be the least of your worries. Like they were, you you could severely be ostracized in your community, in your family even. Um, so like your family was not going to be supportive of you being promiscuous. If everyone be known or associated with you as a promiscuous young lady, you reflected badly on the entire family if you um, engaged in those kinds of things. But now, girls being uh, promiscuous is, is, is relabeled as free and expressive, and she's in touch with her sexuality. And of course, other language that's just nonsense in an effort to be permissive and supposedly to balance uh, the way many women are viewed. Instead of doing the opposite and making men more accountable, women became less accountable because the world is backwards. You know, we, we, we know that we're not supposed to aspire to the, to the perceptions of the world because the world is backwards. And we see this. Instead of the men becoming accountable, women lost accountability backwards. Not acceptable. Likewise, this idea of the solution to male infidelity is to simply throw more women at him. Because he can't be, because he, he, he's such an uncontrolled savage who, whose bestial lust cannot be contained, you should just throw more women at him and put them all, and you just kind of make friends with her. Please. Number one, crazy because after he's finished betting her, she's still there. After he's had that nut, there's a whole person, not just nut, there's a whole person in your house. This whole person now wants your attention, needs your affection, needs you to spend time with them, needs you to invest in them, wants to learn with you, wants to cuddle with you. This person is more than just, you know, where you deposited your seed or where you extracted your blood. So basically, you come, and because you're this hot ball of sexual energy that you expelled in this woman, once you're done, it's your wife's job to entertain her until you're ready to expel again. The logic. I'm going to be the one that nuts in her, but you, my first wife, your job is to entertain her while I'm gone. You guys get along and play nice. And we'll figure out the bed schedule later. <laughs> wow. Yep. Correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially, then I see these these, and this is not, you know, we just had I've seen these relationships. So twenty twenty years, twenty one years, you're what twenty two years? I mean, we've seen this, not even that. In all of this, in several videos, no matter how they package it, at the end of the day, you watch these videos. All even these pro polygamy. Videos where they're saying, oh, I'm in a polygamous situation. This is a relationship. They put these women on, and these women give you all of the positive attributes of their paradigm. And the male has impregnated them, but they are the ones who are dealing with all the daily instances. This is, if, if one needs to be comforted, the one does it. Oh, I'm feeling bored of only so it's a good thing I have my sister. Of course I have <laughs> Exactly. 
And, you know, this is great with the scriptures. Where's your husband? Ah, uh, it says David organizing the time. Where's your husband? You can have an awesome sisterhood. I'm cool with that. But a lot of the things that you are attributing to this other woman belong to your husband. Yeah. At the end of the day, you have a great deal of respect and admiration for a woman. I I gather from your belly that you are having sex with that man, but everything else you are giving to this woman. That's not okay. I don't understand. I really, I have a lot of difficulty processing how no one else is thinking all of these things through. That's still a full functioning woman that has and deserves, has a right to and deserves more than your sexual attention. She's she's not just a vacuum that you can throw in the closet until you're ready to, to do something with her again. And she's not the responsibility of your other wife. She really isn't. It's not your wife's responsibility. Nope. Sure isn't. And that's crazy to me. It's crazy to me that anyone accepts that as okay. Now, I'm not, obviously it's great that, that, that women are, are have a sisterhood. Obviously, but, you know, your sisterhood, it's possible to have, I have amazing, if you ask me, I, you know, only correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that our relationship, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I have never slept with your husband. I've never asked or desired. I have no intention. I don't need to have a sexual relationship with your husband to have this amazing, incredibly fulfilling sisterhood with you. Mm-hmm. So the idea that sisters get closer or or you need to be in the same household or <laughs> even, even if it were, even, even if circumstances became the case that I needed a place to stay, I mean, I mean, if it was possible, would definitely, I don't doubt that she would say, you know what, Maya, come on. And I got a spare room. His daughter's in college. I'm sorry, whatever, what, you know, this is, this is your situation. Uh, you know, this is this. Come to this. But come stay with me. Positive, I could live in her house without ever sharing a bed with her husband and still be allowed to stay there. I don't need to sleep with her husband to push a vacuum cleaner to babysit her, 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 grand, her grandchildren. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. Our sisterhood is not predicated on my sexual relationship with her husband. That's so weird to me. It's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. It's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. If my sister needed to come stay with me, and my situation allowed for it. A single sister has a circumstance where she needed a place to stay, and I had the accommodations for her. I would fully expect to be able to say to her, "Come and stay here. Give her the room, she, you know, and, and build with her the way I build with sisters." And no one would expect for me to lend my husband, you know, for, for her to be riding my husband's penis when I'm not around, or, or you know, when I am reading scripture, you know, whatever. Whatever, whatever, you know, because I'm unclean that day, you know, what else is she supposed to do, right? I mean, seriously, 
I don't understand the, the ideology that is pushing forward this notion that women need to cohabitate in order to build up, not even the cohabitation, because it's great to have uh, a sister in close proximity, but that because of this cohabitation, the expectations, surely she's also having a sexual relationship with your husband. In the previous, this brings me to the previous uh, session. And we're coming past our time, so we'll wrap it up. Oh, wow, we'll, we well exceeded our time. Uh, I'm going to just say this quickly, and then we can close, unless there's anything else to say. But it was an interesting proposition uh, that was shared with us in the last session. But I didn't get to fully uh, address. Um, but the idea is this. A sister, like, a sister has a, a good relationship with her husband. That that man is a, a well-informed, firmly rooted, righteous, you know, what we call righteous um, man, right? Once he has a, a – now, I'm going to define righteous, okay, because I, I think righteous means different things to different people. Some people think you have a Hebrew name, that's what's up, righteous. No. Righteous meaning there's a fear of the Most High. There is a a zeal for our people, that there is an accountability to his family, that there is a, a participation in the community, that he is um, dealing with other men on how to lucratively and uh, actually nation build. That type of man. He's married to that type of man. The type of man that can sit at the gate and, and the other men have good things to say about him. That type of man. That the, the, a sister who is unmarried should have access to that man. That if she has a hunger, that if she has a thirst for righteousness and she wants to be firmly rooted as well, that this married man, she should have access to him. At the time, I didn't really. I, I, I thought I just did, but I kept feeling like maybe I didn't really. But the more I think about it, it's problematic. And the sisters who, who remain online can, can deal with this with me. But that's problematic to me because I'm really having difficulty understanding why that's not coveting that sister's husband. It, 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 it's really the line between what entitles, what entitles, what entitles, let's say, you know, my husband sits all those criteria. He's an amazing dude, right? What entitles a woman to walk in and say she should have him? What entitles me? What, what entitles a, a, a woman to go into another woman's another person's home and feel entitled to her husband just because she wants him. I just, what biblical principle supports this? How, does anybody have a definition for coveting? Isn't coveting exactly that? Isn't that exactly what coveting is? That if someone else has something and you want it, that's coveting. You covet someone else's something that is not yours and is attached to someone else. The idea that that 
everyone made, we, we've already established that it's not the case that there's a shortage of men. Whether or not there's a, a shortage of righteous men, it's just really a matter of spirituality and literacy. Because to become righteous, to pursue the law, to pursue the most high, to pursue what is, is good, comes from being able to read. Half of these brothers just have Hebrew names. They're not particularly or especially righteous. They have affiliations. They probably know Deuteronomy 28 and all of the shut-up women scriptures. doesn't make them learn men. There are uh, some brothers that have a, a much better understanding. And, yes, those are very rare men. And, yes. Some of them are married. Some of them aren't. Some of them are. But the ones that are, because they are, doesn't mean that they should have every sincere sister. That because they have, they are a sincere man, that every sincere sister should tie herself to him. And so, and what? The Most High has the ability to give you a husband that is righteous. It's not, and if, if Facebook is your frame of reference, you probably think that a, a good righteous man is rare, you know, as pink salt. You know, pink salt is not that rare, but it's rarer than common salt or black salt. You probably think that that's a very rare thing because Facebook is not a good platform. But similarly, there are people who think that black men can't achieve any type of prosperity or can't achieve, can't accomplish anything based on their frame of reference. I don't have that same frame of reference, so this is not my struggle. I don't believe that all of the men are, are there's a, a, a tragic lack of informed brothers because, again, it's not my experience. It's not my circle. And because you can have communications with men and men over time can increase their knowledge, you can marry somebody, build a relationship with that person, and grow. And grow. But then again, again, I think another component of this um, attraction or, or urgency to to gravitate towards this man, even if he's married, comes from beginning at the wife stage. Because if a woman is thirsty in, in a good way, not in a bad way, I'm not using it in the colloquial uh, kind of common slang way, but having a, a sincere thirst uh, and hunger and passion and zeal for the truth, if we have that type of sister, if she's beginning in her wife stage thinking, okay, I have all of this deal, what am I going to do? I don't know anything. I don't know where to put it. I want to grow. I want to be attached to somebody. I want to start my wifely, whatever. She might feel a different type of urgency than the one that has all of those things. And instead of uh, urgently needing to be attached to a man, urgently needs to be attached to her father. The sister that's starting off with that kind of zeal, that kind of passion, that kind of uh, commitment, 
and wants to be the daughter of the Most High and find her father is probably going to be a better wife and more likely to wait and believe that her father is going to bring a man to her that's for her. That she doesn't have to worry about the sister that already has with the brother. She's not worried about that sister. She can hang out with that sister and be in that that sister's house and think that her husband is awesome and maybe even share their family studies when when the family is studying together and sit in that living room and feel very much at ease. Like, yeah, I'm running from a righteous family without feeling like she should also be sleeping with her husband or also be a wife in that household, that she's okay with being a sister in that household because her urgency is with connecting with the Most High. And is that Michael? No. No? No? Okay, well, uh, I don't have that. I don't have a call coming in, so it's not my line from what I can see. But I have pretty much made the points that I wanted to make. There are scriptures that I'll probably drop into the forum because we are well beyond a of time that about lusting. Like the scriptures go against lusting. You're not supposed to lust. I wanted to, to go give you a quick reminder about Tobit uh, in Tobit 8 and 4 when Tobit marries um, Sarah. He specifically says that he's not doing it because he needs to satiate his lust not why you get married. You don't get married because you need to have a, a place to put your lust. You know, there are all of these, like the wisdom of Solomon, the scriptures of Ecclesiastes, that address the fact that if you are in the mindset as a man, in the mindset that you are pursuing the most high, lust is not a problem for you. You're not still fighting your flesh. Once you have made a commitment to be the son of the Most High and do your your father's business, you your blue balls is not your your big concern. This is this is not what's going to undo you because your your mind is elsewhere. The comment ever had a lot of a lot I mean a lot of scriptures that deal with lust, probably because of the fact that they're in that political climate of the Roman Greco environment where. They had weird sexual permissiveness for men. And so uh, dealing with lust is probably something that these people who have been removed from Hebrew culture for such a long time had to be reminded of. So there's a lot of scriptures that deal with it there. But, you know, we have all these apocryphal scriptures, and we know the Torah talks against lust. And so lust is something that you want to avoid, not reward. And... um, that addresses my final supposition. You, you, one thing I want to say, too, you got to be careful who you allow in your house. Um, just as we say, in, you have to really know that sister that you're dealing with, and you have to really know your husband. Because just like we we know that um, there's a lot of people that are saying that they're Israel, and they're not, and they're following Torah, and they're really not. Um. You just got to be very careful who you let into your circle. Me personally, I'm very particular about who I let in my circle um, and into my house because sometimes people can can do funny things, as my husband say. People can do funny things. And um, 
you just got to be very careful because you might think this sister is coming from a good place, but she's not really coming from a good place. And people have a way to um, to pretend for a very long time. I've dealt with that. I've had the unpleasant pleasure to deal with such a thing, not with a sister, but with a brother. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just be mindful of who you allow in, over across your threshold, um, because even in Hebrew culture, those things meant something when you allow somebody into your house. Those things really did mean something. It wasn't just a frivolous thing that you just did. <clears throat> that that's all my saying about that. Agreed. So um we're coming upon the third hour. Just <laughs> yes. Um I'm going to go ahead and terminate the recording. Unless there's anything else that anyone else wants to contribute to this dialogue. Any questions, any comments, any contributions? Okay, with that being said, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.